Theology Gals, Episode 17, Being Dad with Dr. Scott Keith. Knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi and welcome to Theology Gals, a podcast for women on the Bible Company Wingnut Network and I'm Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Ashley Glassick and we have a great interview coming up today. We'll be talking to Dr. Scott Keith about his book, Being Dad, Father is a Picture of God's Grace. For all of our ladies out there, I promise there's a lot in the interview, which I already recorded for you too. Whether you're a mom, whether you're a single lady, single lady um, it's a really fun interview. So Ashley, you're done with school now, aren't you? Yes, I am. I'm on summer break. So excited. Yeah, I know you were anxious. <laughs> I think all teachers are. <laughs> So, yeah, mm -hmm. so excited. The only thing I'm not excited about is that I live in the desert, sort of, and it's like 90 degrees. So, yeah, but, yep, I have friends in Arizona, and I'm just like, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> yeah, I know. We did, I mean, since I'm from the same area, there is some of those 110-degree days, but I think when I visited Arizona, it was, it was worse. Mm -hmm. And so... Yeah, it's pretty bad. I was actually born in Arizona. You probably didn't really? know that. Yeah, I only when, lived there for a few months. When I moved to California, we drove through, we moved in August, so drove through Arizona in August mm -hmm. to get to California, and we stopped at a hotel, um, I think in Phoenix, and my mom was like, why don't you guys go get in the pool? We were young. And so we go to go get in the pool, and the pool was 97 degrees My because goodness. it was like a 107 degree day, you know? Yes. So hot. So when we'd be in um, Palm Springs. And oh, have, yeah. Because mm -hmm. my, my parents had a little vacation home in Palm Desert and it would get so hot. And then we would always have to find things to do in the afternoon. We'd go in the pool in the morning in the pool at night. And then during the day, like the ice skating rink or the mall or something indoors because it was just mm -hmm. too hot to be outside. Yeah. So hopefully it's not um, too hot of a summer for you, but you are going to Italy in a couple of weeks or I guess yeah. like a week and a half. If you think. Yeah. Yeah. So I shouldn't complain about my summer because <laughs> I'll be in Italy oh, next week. So it's going to be, it's gonna be yeah. fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. So how are you doing? So good. My family just got home Thursday night. My husband and two of my sons from their 
UK trip. So oh, awesome. Glad that they're home. Oh yeah. They saw so much. They were tired and ready to come home, but they had a lot of fun and saw a lot of neat things and a lot of great pictures. So now Brent is saying, okay, I got to take you back and here's all the stuff I got to show you. <laughs> so we're going to have to do another, another trip, which I'm glad that they got to do kind of the father and son trip. Right. Though. Right. Yeah. This week, I'm trying to think if there was anything exciting. Oh, there was actually something in the group that I think might be worth bringing up. Somebody had posted one of those signs, you lust and murder and blah, 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 you go to hell sort of signs. Uh huh. And so there was kind of a discussion about whether that's really the best way to approach it. And the problem with the sign, and some people said, oh, you know, I, I think one girl in particular said, well, I think it's perfectly fine. Isn't that the message Jesus preached? But... I think other girls said it doesn't have the gospel though. It leaves, it's saying if you're, basically it's saying if you're a sinner, you're going to hell, end of story. It, it mm -hmm. said nothing about Jesus. Yeah, and it, I think what was weird too is it lists all the sins out, which, mm -hmm. you know, I know there are lists in scripture. There mm -hmm. are verses in scripture that say, you know, if you are doing these things, you know, like I understand where they got it from. But when you include like yoga pants, right, if on you your wear sign, yoga pants, you're going to hell. Yeah, yeah. I'm like yoga pants, <laughs> and right. I think that's why a lot of girls were kind of baffled because it's like, how is yoga pants in the spoken of in the same breath as murderers? Like, right. Help, help me understand that. <laughs> so I saw one of those lists and I'm going around Facebook a while back, and and it included vegetarian. Oh my gosh. So vegetarian yeah, like, vegetarian is such a grievous sin. Apparently you're going to go to hell. Wow. Right. I didn't realize vegetarianism was a transgression against God's law. That's news to me. Yeah. I remember what else <laughs> was on the list, but a couple of things I was like, okay, that is just not, that's, I haven't seen that on that list before. You yeah. know, yes, we are all sinners. Mm -hmm. We are all sinners, but we have hope in through faith in Christ and his finished work. But that was an interesting, interesting discussion. And I think, you know, that the kind of people that tend to do those signs sometimes are maybe harsh. Like you think of Westboro Baptist Church with some of their yeah. signs and stuff, instead yeah. of including the hope of the gospel. Well, yeah, and I mentioned, I think on that thread is, I think sometimes people are in environments where they hear all grace and no law, and then other people are in environments where they hear all law and no grace. Um, I grew up in the mo more grace than law, and so it, you, it's hard to find that balance because you, you do have to give people the law so that they see that they are a sinner in need of a right. savior. You do have to give the law because some people say, oh, you don't tell people you're their sinners. You don't No, you have to do that, but you have to provide hope, you know, just to right. just to say, hey, you're a sinner. Here's this list of things and you, you're doing some of these things. So you're going to hell. That's there's no hope in that. It's just like, OK, well, I guess right. I'm going to keep doing them because I guess I'll keep wearing yoga pants. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and one thing that did come out of the Reformation is with distinguishing law and gospel, understanding the place of the law and understanding the place of the gospel. Yeah. And so I think that that is super important. I love this one quote from Luther, and this is off the top of my head, so it's not verbatim, but it's something like, 
the law is for the hard-hearted, the gospel for the broken-hearted. Hmm. And, you know, because the broken-hearted are the ones that understand the law already and need yeah. to hear the gospel, that there is hope. I think the mistake, so the mistake they're making is they're doing all law. There's no, right. like, gospel. There's no That's grace. True. The mistake a lot of, you know, broadly evangelical churches will make, I'm not, you know, putting them all in this umbrella, but there are those churches out there that give all grace. That, right. You know, just... The antinomian message. Jesus loves you. He, he died on the cross for your sins, but we're not going to really talk about sin that much. Um, mm -hmm. And it's kind of just like, oh, sweet. Like, I don't... I don't really have to do anything like it's, you know, you, you can't, right. I think R.C. Sproul says you can't give the good news if you don't give the bad news first. You need to show people the law so that they see that they fall short. They have to see, they right. have to understand that they're deserving of God's wrath before you can tell them, but, you know, yeah. Jesus died right. on the cross. Well, yeah. I don't think you can fully understand how just totally amazing God's grace is if you don't understand how damning the law is. Yeah. It's yeah, not it, grace if you don't understand the law. It's not even that good of news, you know? It's right. just like, I was already good, and then you just told me Jesus loves me. All right, I'm still good. Like, right. positionally, I haven't changed. I'm still right. good. That's kind of know? like the message in, like, Joel Osteen, those sorts of churches. You know, it's it's like you, you're a good person, and with Jesus, you can just be a little better person. Yeah, self help. Not you're a sinner deserving God's right. wrath, but there's this hope. You know, we have in Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Yes, exactly. So, well, this actually fits right into our guest today because we talk about grace and parenting, and I, I think it's a really really interesting episode and I think he says some things that even really helped me because I already recorded it so we're going to go to that interview and then Ashley and I will be back afterwards with our question of the week this podcast is a member of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. All right, welcome everybody to another podcast episode with Semper Reformanda Radio. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. Welcome everyone to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Well, welcome to the School of Biblical Hermeneutics. Welcome everybody to Grappling with Theology. What is going on, guys? Shine as lights coming at you. Well, welcome to Slick Answers. Good evening and welcome to the Conversations from the port. This is the Council of Google Plus. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Bible Thumping Wingnut Podcast. The Bible Thumping Wingnut Network. Ten podcasts, one network. Check them out. BibleThumpingWingnut.com. And we're back with Theology Gals, and we have our guest, Dr. Scott Keith. And Dr. Keith, can you just share just a little bit about your background before we get into talking about your book? Yeah, sure. Um, generally, when I'm asked to give myself an introduction, I start out by saying that I'm a, a husband and a father first, because that's what I have been most consistently over the last 22 years. Um, 
married to my wife, Joy. We have three kids. Caleb, who is our oldest, is 22. Um, he's also a father. I have one grand granddaughter, Esther, and a daughter-in-law, Erica. Our second oldest, his name is Joshua. He's 20. And then we have a daughter, Autumn, who's 17, almost 18. So we're kind of on the, the other side of where a lot of parents are for this. We're looking forward to a little more time to ourselves <laughs> that we haven't had in 22 years. <laughs> and, that's, a, uh, that's the same with us. We're in that same spot. Yeah. So it's uh, it's kind of fun, actually. We're really enjoying it. I'm enjoying being grandparents. I'm also the executive director of 1517, the Legacy Project. Um, I'm an adjunct professor of theology at Concordia University, Irvine. Um, I hold a PhD. My PhD is in uh, Reformation theology, specifically the theology of a guy named Philip Melanchthon um, and his doctrine of good works. So we live kind of half time in San Juan Capistrano and half time in Big Bear down in California. Just to kind of start out, well, as I said before we before we brought Dr. Keith on, he is author of the book Being Dad Father as a picture of God's grace. And can you just maybe give an overview of what really the book is about, who you're writing to, who's going to benefit from reading this book? I'm I'm hoping some of our ladies that listen will consider this is a great Father's Day gift for their husbands. Yeah, my wife is a much better salesman of the book than I am because she'll tell me I, I limit the audience too much to dads. Um, my daughter-in-law, too, she says the same thing. I think who should buy the book? I think anybody that is um, married and wants to have kids or thinks that they might one day be married and wants to have kids, um, whether male or female, might want to look at the book. I think in the book what I try to do is present a picture of what it is to be a man and what it is to be a dad. Um, I think that's an important picture to paint because it's a very obscured picture in our day and age. Um, it's very difficult to find good portrayals of men anywhere in the media. Um, and even those ones that we do get that are positive are usually legalistic in nature. Um, same thing with fathers. And so in the book, I try to present, as the subtitle says, that uh, dads are to be pictures of God's grace in the house, and that's their calling. Their calling is not as double or down of the law, even though they have to apply the law uh, sometimes, as we all do in, in most of our vocations. But they're really their main picture is to be the mouthpiece of grace in the home, sort of pastor in the home. Um, and that gets, and the way I do that is I use the, the parable of the prodigal son. And the father and the prodigal son is sort of the paramount example of um, what a dad is. And then apply it chapter by chapter to what that means to be married, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a father. Um, some interesting things like fathers provide magic in the lives of their kids. And then there's a lot of stories in the book. One of the things that I'm very proud of um, is the fact that I'm not the only author in the book. I, I asked the people that I know, have known over the last 20 years, as I've been thinking about writing this book for about 20 years, and I've asked the people I've known over the course of the last 20, sometimes even 25 years, to submit stories uh, to the book about either being a dad, um, being a man, or a man or a dad, or a sort of father figure that has influenced them in their life. Right. And I know, well, I wanted to say, I often recommend 
Elise Fitzpatrick's book, Give Them Grace. I, as a mom, very much enjoyed your book and thought it was a really good companion to the message in Elise's book, which was very um, important to me. And you actually did a little conference with Elise, didn't you? We did, yeah. Elise and I teamed up to do a conference called Giving Them Grace. I think we're planning a second one in the San Diego area sometime next year. I don't think we have all the details flushed out, but we, the two of us really do see um, that the that our books can work together. Um, I'd say that Elise and Jessica, Jessica helped out with that too, Jessica Thompson. Mm-hmm. Their book is, um, it's got a lot of, how would you say, I don't want to say theoretical in it, but there's a lot of practical in their book. I'm not, there's not a lot of practical advice in my book. I try to paint pictures um, and let the pictures do the talking. Um, so if there is a difference, I think it's sad. There's a lot of practical advice in Elise and Jessica's book, which is good. Um, I just yeah. don't feel feel qualified to give practical advice. <laughs> well, that's why I said I think it's a good companion because you give a lot, like you said, of those stories. Elise gives a little bit more of the practical advice. So I think I think it's great that you guys are doing stuff. And when you get the details for that conference, let me know. I will let our our ladies know we have a lot of Southern California ladies and we had actually recommended when you guys, I think you were in Michigan with Elise before. Yeah, Grand Rapids. So for our ladies, if you're in Southern California, just look out for that conference. So just talk a little bit about fatherhood in America because I, I don't, I think most people know that it's, it's in a pretty poor state. Yeah, one of the ways it's in a pretty poor state is just that there's a deficit of fathers in homes generally. Well, at the beginning of the book, I put in a statistic that when I go out and teach this, which I'm blessed to do quite a bit, um, that f- I want, I'll start out by saying 42% of American of children in American homes grow up without fathers in the home. And what that means is that there is no consistent father figure present in the home, either biological or not biological. Um, That's very unfortunate um, in many ways. Um, There's a lot of sociological implications that come along with that. There's even some theological ones or spiritual implications that come along with that. Sociologically, if you grow up without a father in the home um, as a child, you're much more likely um, to... Uh, suffer from like uh, um, learning disorders. Um, I think it's something in the order of 80% of all convicted rapists come from fatherless homes. Something around 60% of all runaway children come from fatherless homes. I mean, it's just the the numbers are staggering. On the spiritual side or on the sort of church side, it's almost even worse. Um, listeners may or might, may not know that the current generation that everyone likes to pick on the um, the millennials, that those millennials that grow up churched, um, it's in the area of 68% of them by the time they're 26 will leave the faith, um, they say for good, and by the time they're 29 years old, it's in the area of 71% will leave the faith. Mm. Um, As that applies to whether there's a father in the home, there was a study done in uh, Switzerland in the 90s being doubled up in the UK sometime later which um, astoundingly showed that if it was, and they did this for, I always like to sort of give my caveats on this, that they were asking about faith traditions. They didn't, they, so Christianity came into it, but they were asking about all of the faith traditions. And the basic question that was asked was that if you were raised in a particular faith, 
and then sustained in that faith into adulthood, who was the main influence for you growing up that brought you to that faith that maybe catechized you, taught you about the faith and brought you to church or wherever. Um, and it very shockingly showed that if both mom and dad brought, so taking the Christian context, brought their children to church and were involved in sort of the faith upbringing of their children, the average that I gave you with the millennials pretty much holds true. About 40% um, percent of them would persist in the faith into adulthood, right? So if, if, a, if a husband and wife are both sort of equally involved in the faith bringing up of the children, about 40%, maybe a little lower, will persist into the faith into adulthood. That's scary enough. Um, if it was mom only, that number dropped off a cliff. And it's only about, on the high side, it's about 6 to 7% of the children were persistent in the faith, statistically. Now, I always tell people after I say that, that don't get too discouraged if you're raising children on your own as a mother. I was raised by my mom alone with the help of my grandmother. And one of the things you have to be aware of when you talk about statistics is you're talking about grand numbers that are applied to thousands, if not millions of people. You're not talking about individual cases. So individual cases can be very different than the grand numbers. So don't get too discouraged in here. Um, on the flip side of that, one of the weird things that I think everybody was shocked about is that the numbers showed that if it was father alone, without the assistance of mother, that brought the children of, uh, to the faith as children, as high as 70 to almost 80% of those children would persist in the faith. Um, now, when I do this at churches, so that means that if, if it's dad by himself bringing to church statistically, you know, 70%-ish of those children will stay in the faith as adults. When I do this at churches, I say, okay, compare that to when you look around at, on Sunday morning and see how many moms are there by themselves with their kids. You know, and and really gauge how important it is in some way, shape, or form to get men back into the church, to get men back involved in the faith lives of their household and their family and their children. Um, I don't. I think it's important that mom and dad both be involved. I would never take it so far as to say, well, hey, just kick mom out of it and do their thing. I think some of what goes on, why the number is a little bit lower when it's mom and dad involved. Um, anecdotally, I would say my observation is about 60, 70% of the time, when dad is at church with the whole family is because mom drug him there along with the kids, maybe as one of the kids. Um, right. And so you get the number, it's a little bit better than mom on her own, but not that much better. Um, and I, it's really an encouragement for me to say, hey, guys, you could look at this one or two ways. It could be a very lowering and thing. say, hey, you better do this because it's really important. Or you could say, hey, this is an encouragement to you, um, a gospel-centered encouragement to you saying that, most people don't find this very important that you be involved in the lives of your kids and the statistics would say otherwise, um, both sociologically, spiritually, religiously, whatever. Yeah, that, that is very, very fascinating. And um, how general culture and then the church, how fatherhood is um, compared. You had mentioned earlier vocation and I think the doctrine of vocation and and also, you know, both in both moms and dads, can you talk about motherhood and fatherhood and the doctrine of vocation? Because I think that might be new for some of our listeners. 
So the doctrine of vocation is an idea that came out of the Reformation, I think first out of the Lutheran Reformation and then out of some of the other magisterial reformations. And basically what's involved there is that prior to the Reformation, if a person wanted to serve God, they had to go into the quote-unquote professional ministry, one of the professional ministries, to become a monk or a nun or a priest or an abbot or some such thing like that. And the idea was um, then that if you were the guy that was making the boots or the shoes in the town, you were working so hard making shoes that you didn't have time to serve God the way that you should. And so this class of people, the priestly class, was set up, and they were 100% dedicated to praying and to the sacraments and to preaching and to serving God, helping the poor. And they would do that for you. And then you, you know, by getting sacraments or whatever, would participate in all the extra works that they were putting together. When Luther came along and he had sort of his evangelical discovery and his gospel discovery, you know, that a person is not free um, before God because of what they do um, by means of the sacraments or participating, but they're free because Christ has freed them by his death and resurrection, and now they're free from sin, death, and the power of the devil. The, the other part that came along with that is that he said, and by the way, guys, when we read Ephesians 2.10, you know, that God prepared for you to do these good works and to walk in them, that that actually means that in your daily life and those things that God has called you to do in your daily life, you're actually a servant of God. You're actually doing God's work. And the, one of the famous lines from, Bootma, uh, from Luther, there's two of them that I think are really good. I'll paraphrase them and probably destroy them. So if people look them up, don't blame me. But basically, if a, when a bootmaker makes a quality boot and sells, sells it at a fair price, he's doing so to the glory of God. And or that's his ministry, right? The other one that Luther said that I do have in the book that paraphrase goes along the lines of when a mother takes care of her children, or I think he literally says changes the diaper of a poopy baby, um, that she's doing a more glorious work than a thousand priests have done in all of their lifetime. You know, that their that vocation of mom, that calling, it's from a Latin word, vocatio, which just means to be called. That calling of being a mom, that calling of being dad is something that God has called them to, now that they're free before him in a gospel-oriented fashion, to freely serve um, those people that God has put in their lives. When I teach this to students at Concordia, I say if you look at it kind of like concentric circles that kind of move, they get bigger as they move outwards. We're on radio here or whatever, so you can't see my hands going outwards. But they get bigger as they go outwards. God has put people into your life. And in the middle of these circles is the smallest one, and that's probably your family, your your, your husband, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters, your grandparents, your aunts and uncles, whatever. And God has put those people into your life so that you can serve in the vocation of mother or father. And you do that just by doing what you do in your everyday, it's everyday life. It's the simplest and at the same time most complicated thing. Is when people find out that they're saved, when people say, oh my gosh, Jesus died for me and I'm saved, their next reaction is often to ask, well, what do I get to do for God now? And the answer is often pretty disappointing because God looks at him and goes, well, I, you know, I'm God. I made heaven and earth and I made you and I saved you all on my own without any of your help. And uh, to be honest with you, I don't really need anything from you. You need everything from me. This is kind of a one-way relationship as far as need goes. And they get kind of disappointed. You know, God doesn't really need anything from me. But then God says, hey, look around at these people that I put in your life. They need you. 
your kids need you, your parents need you, your brothers and sisters need you, your grandparents need you, your friends need you, your aunts and uncles, your nieces and nephews need you. They need you. And when you work in their lives in that calling as their father or mother, for example, you're doing so to my glory. And just like Christ says, and even when they've done this to the least of these, my brethren, they've done it for me. So that's the kind of the doctrine of vocation, how it applies to being a mom and dad. So when I go out, I'll say, listen, when you do those simplest things in your life, you are fulfilling your vocation. And in so you're serving your neighbor and, in, and thusly you're serving God. Um, I give the example because people say, well, what does this look like? And like I said, I'm bad at practical examples. But in my marriage, my pretty simple example is that every morning when I wake up, I'm such a coffee addict that I basically have to stumble my way to the to the coffee section in our kitchen, grind the beans, pour it in the French press, put the hot water in the French press, and then wait those four minutes, just like counting the seconds until my coffee's ready, plunge the French press. And the moment I decide to pour two cups instead of one and to take that second cup and give it to my wife and give her a little kiss on the cheek and say, I love her, I'm actually fulfilling my vocation to the glory of God. Um, and it's that simple and it's that complicated. And for the times when I don't do that, you know, I, I bask in the glory of the forgiveness I have on account of Christ alone. And for the times that I do do that, I bask in the glory that I have on the forgiveness of Christ alone because I probably did it imperfectly anyway. All of my merit, good, bad, and otherwise, has been consumed by Christ and God sees me as his. And thus I'm free to be a husband, to be a father, and to live out my vocation, knowing that I'm going to sin, knowing that I'm going to stumble, knowing that I'm going to fail, and knowing that I'm forgiven. That was really, really wonderfully said and explained. In your book, The Prodigal Son is a pretty big theme. You you start with talking about the prodigal son, and I even have a very favorite quote from that section. But before I tell you what that is, can you just kind of talk about why that is an important theme in your book to to what you are, the point you're trying to get across? Uh, sure. I mean, and when I go out and teach this, I'm pretty clear to say that um, one of the dangers we can stumble into with parables is to, to look to examine a parable and go, oh, I, you know, everyone that's come before me has been really confused. This is what this parable actually means, right? Um, parables were given for multiple reasons. They were given to teach. They were given to instruct. Um, more often than we'd like to admit, God, you, Christ used those parables to confound his listeners, to actually confuse them a little bit, to mix them up a little bit, make them struggle a little bit with their preconceived categories. And so when I say that um, the reason I use it in the book is because I think it's one of the clearest pictures and most didactic or teaching-oriented pictures that we have in the scriptures of what a father looks like. And when Christ is giving the parable, he's obviously making a comparison or an analogy to God the Father through the Father and the prodigal son. Um, now, most assuredly, the parable is primarily about our salvation, right? Um, and not about our daily life as family. But it can be that too. There's a concept that um, was pretty clearly developed by a Roman Catholic theologian named uh, Thomas Aquinas. Um, it's, a, it's a Latin phrase, analogia entis, and it's pretty easy. It just means analogy of being. And Thomas was struggling with how is a sinner like me supposed to describe a great, holy, and perfect God? And he said, you know, one of the ways that we do this is we use word pictures or we draw analogies. Um, 
And so what, when we get the story of the prodigal son, we get the story of a dad with two kids, two sons. I have two sons, so I relate to it quite a bit. One's older, one's younger. The older one is sort of the typical older son that you might even see on a TV show. He's very responsible. He always does what he's asked. The younger one is also sort of the typical younger son you might see on a TV show. He's not as responsible. He you know, less frequently does what he's asked. He's kind of a pain in the neck to his entire family. And the story starts out with, I mean, if we had more time, I'd draw you this big picture. But basically, the story starts out with the son, the younger son, asking for um, something that he sh just should not ask for. He asks for his inheritance, which in his culture means that he's wishing his father dead, um, that he's trying to put his family into financial ruin. It's just an incredibly selfish thing. And I love the story because it start. we often think that we have it all figured out. Like, oh, this is what a good father does, and this is what a good father is. And the, the parable of the prodigal son is such a wonderful picture, even culturally for its own time, because the father, although I think he presents a picture of the most masculine man you'll ever come across and the best father you'll ever come across, culturally in his time and ours is kind of a wimp, right? As we would think about it, he gives in to the request of his son to sell half of what they own to give it over so he can go blow it on prostitutes and drugs and whatever else he does in the far off land. And he's not a great, he's by our standards, by our legalistic standards, not a great father, right? He's, he's not teaching his son any great lesson by telling him to go off. He's not even teaching him any great lesson by accepting him without any requirements to come back into the family at the end of the story. He is sort of the, the anti-father picture, and yet he's what Christ uses to describe how our Heavenly Father treats us, and it's the best picture we have of what a father is like. I love it because it goes against our, all, all of our current cultural conceptions of what a father is supposed to be like. In the book, I argue that when we see men portrayed uh, generally, and fathers specifically, they're either portrayed as sort of bubbling, bumbling idiots like Homer Simpson, you know, who can never get anything right, I'd say I'd add a third one to that now. They'd be portrayed as homosexual, possibly, a bumbling idiot, or the heavy, right? Sort of the ultra-masculine, six-foot-two, big biceps father with a deep voice who just comes in and, you know, does what mom can't and get everything in order by raising his fist and yelling. And the picture we get in the prodigal son is the exact opposite of that. And yet, if you read it, I guarantee you that every man that's ever heard that wanted to be that father. And he wanted to be that father because it's the most masculine picture of a man ever painted, and it's the most beautiful picture of a father that we've ever seen anywhere in any literature. So that's why I use it. Yeah, and um, a couple things. I, in, in the beginning of the book, when you say, and I don't have it in front of me, so I've, I should have had it in front of me, but you say that it's our sinfulness that thinks that the answer to every every problem is to throw a little law at it. And that is something that I've even thought about in my own parenting, where we do think that that's the answer to, to every problem. And Elise in her book says, everything that's not gospel is law. Absolutely. Everything that's not law is gospel, you know. And I can you can you maybe just talk about that law and gospel in in our parenting? Because I think that's something really important. Yeah. I mean, the, it is our sinfulness that makes us believe that the answer to every question is just to add a little bit more law. Um, and so by adding more law, we're saying more requirements, more rules, more punishment, 
more um, shaming, more whatever, right? Um, those things that we culturally think will fix the problem, right? Even in society, you see it. You know, if there's another um, whatever that happens, the answer is always, well, what can we do about it? Pass another law, right? So we always think that more law is the answer. We rarely think that more gospel and or more forgiveness, more graciousness, more kindness, more compassion. We rarely think that that's the answer. You know, we, we equate gospel or graciousness to permissiveness, and I think that's a horrendous mistake. Graciousness is not permissiveness, nor is freedom. Um, freedom actually hands over the responsibility of their lives to the person that's being freed. That's not permissive at all. It just it, it transfers the responsibility from the person who had it before to the individual who now has it. Um, and I love when Elise says that. And so in parenting, I think it's very important for mothers and fathers to maybe take a breath. And I'm getting practical here, which I, I said I'm bad at. But to just in, in particular situations, take a breath. I just came back. I was driving with my friend Dan Van Voris, who um, was a Concordia prof, too. We were talking about this. And I said, you know, what? where I start, I think, is where um, most people end or want to and or want to keep going my book starts with the assumption that your kids have been the little sinners that they are have done something horribly wrong or multiple things horribly wrong and have been punished either by you by someone else like a teacher or by just the natural consequences of this law this world that's steeped in sin and the law too and my the question that my book book starts with is now what now what so that's sort of the prodigal son too, right? That story starts with that younger kid doing the worst thing he could possibly do and then asks the question, now what? I think the now what for dads is nine times out of 10, and I'm, I'm gonna get a little controversial for, um, you guys say call yourselves gals for the gals in the audience, so I guess mm -hmm. I can say it too. Um, I think the perception even, in, especially in Christianity, is that when the dad comes home, right, and the whole day has gone to heck, and mom's frustrated, and the kids are frustrated, and everybody's at their wit's end, there's tears everywhere, and the place looks like a hurricane just went through it. The idea is that dad's supposed to come home and stand next to mom and go, what have you guys done to your mother? I'm going to take care of this. You guys start cleaning this up and that up and that up. And mom's going to sit over here and have a glass of wine. And I'm going to continue yelling at you for the next two hours so she can get a little revenge on what you've done to her all day. Um, and I think to myself, I've said this before, and so you may never want to have me back on the show, but I'm going to say it. I think that's the most arrogant thing that we've come up with as a culture, especially as a Christian culture. Um, as Christians, especially if Christians of the Reformation tradition, we acknowledge that all people are born sinful and unclean. Um, and that sort of given the choice to work as their own druthers apart from the, the work of the Holy Spirit and on account of Christ will sin, right? They will, right. they will incline, they will incline that way. That's the idea is that our inclination is towards sin. And so if you apply that idea of the sinfulness of all people to the family situation, we're expected to believe that when all things, when things go to heck in the house, no matter what, it's always the kid's fault, even though they're sinners, just like us. And it's never our fault, even though we're sinners just like them. Um, I would say that whether it's mom or dad, if one of the parents walks into a situation like that where it's gone you know, south that far and everything's just a heck, the idea is to be the person that's the mouthpiece of grace and that walks into that situation and sort of just releases everybody, right? 
I mean, if I'm the dad in that situation, I encourage mom to not stand there at the table while I'm punishing the kids and have a glass of wine, but maybe go out with her girlfriends and have a glass of wine and say, I've got this. And then make the kids some mac and cheese and put on a Disney movie. And as they're watching the movie, kind of clean up the house. And then when mom comes home and the kids are done with the movie, we sit down as a family and we talk about the reality of what happened and the reality of the fact that we're all sorry and that we love each other and that we didn't mean to hurt each other and that we all forgive one another. Um, you know, and you go from there. It's It does no good when everybody's crying already to come in and apply a little bit more law. And anybody that's ever lived that, and I had kids for, you know, my house for, I still have one in my house. Um, that situation happens more often than we like to admit, right? Um, and I think everyone could attest to from their own anecdotal experience that every time we've gone into that and started peppering it with a little bit more law, it never really gets any better. But I guarantee you if you come in and you apply some forgiveness, you apply some grace, um, uh, practically it works out a little, little bit better. The theological component to that that I try to tie together in the book is that, I mean, to just ask a sort of basic question here, a couple basic questions. Um, one of the things I like to point out when I teach it is I say, hey, if you don't think this is important, ask yourself what you expect children to believe when they come into church every Sunday. You expect them to believe that a good father who loved them, even though they were sinners, sent his most precious son, another man, to die for them so that he would could forgive them and have eternal life. How do we expect them to take that to heart and to trust that and to believe that if we've never presented to them a father who is good, gracious, kind, and forgiving, if he's always only been expected to be the voice of the law, or a man in general who is willing to give so much that he'd lay down their life for them? Yeah. And I, and I wanted to say a couple things about what you said. First of all, I have a husband who demonstrated that, and you're right, when... I've had a bad day and he comes home. That's what I want him to do. Come in and crack the whip. And he actually did on several occasions say, you need to call your friends. You need to go out and have a night out. And, and it, it really, what, what happened in that is that my kids on their own came in tears and said, I'm sorry, mommy. And it wasn't yeah. because he cracked the whip. And the other thing I wanted to say is I, and I'd, I'd really like you to talk about this. Um, several years ago, I ran into a guy that I had attended church with as a teenager. And we attended a church where the gospel was preached very clearly. But he had left the church, and I asked him why he left the church. And he said, he said this exactly. I'll never forget it. He said, I could never be good enough for my parents. How was I ever going to be good enough for God? And this was right. kind of right before my kids were hitting the teenage years. And it really, I really understood at that moment how much our understanding of, of the gospel is, is tied to our, our fathers and in some instances our mothers. And, of course, you tell some of those stories even in your book, like the one um, from Rod Rosenblatt. And can you just talk about that? Because I think that really is really the most important point from your book. Yeah, I mean, even if you go to just straight psychological and sociological data, um, there's been several studies that have come out over the last decade 
that show very clearly that when children are interviewed about their conception of father and their conception of God, the two match. And these are, these are, I mean, I'll say it bluntly, these are pagans on the whole doing these studies and asking these questions. And um, it's a one-to-one -one ratio. If you ask a child, uh, what's God, what do, you, what do you think God is like? And they say, he's a jerk, he never does anything for me. And you say, hey, what's your dad like? He's a jerk, he never does anything for me. And the flip side of that, you say, hey, what's your dad like? And say, well, he loves me a lot and he takes care of me and he takes care of our house and all that. And say, what's God like? You say, well, he loves me a lot too. And I know that he's got me in his hands too. It's a it's a one-to-one -one thing. Um, and one of the things that I think we underestimate is the, and I you, I think you could apply this to moms too, but I'm a, my thing's on dads, but we un, we greatly underestimate the apologetic nature or the, the defense of the faith nature of the normal things dads do every day in the lives of their children. Um, I think they can do some magical things um, that are particularly dad-oriented um, that tell the children that they're loved unconditionally and that, um, that somebody's got faith in them and that somebody believes in them and that somebody trusts them and somebody has got them. Um, when I'm out teaching and somebody says, well, what do you mean, what's the difference? I say, okay, I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a picture of the difference here. Your child's six years old. They've been riding their bike for about uh, a year, maybe. I don't know. My kids learned to ride bikes early because I was a biking guy. But um, they've been riding their bike for about a year. They're out in the, the street or the cul-de-sac or whatever. They're riding their bikes around with their friends. And you and your wife come out, and maybe you have a coffee or an adult beverage in your hand. you got your arm around your wife, and you're watching the kids ride their bike, just enjoying being a parent. And you see that um, the kids, the probably the boy kids, have got a brick and a plank of wood and have set up their first little jump. And say, what's the dad's reaction and what's the mom's reaction? Um, I know my reaction was always, I know my wife's reaction was always to say, hey, do you have your helmet? Do you have your pads? Da, 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 da. And I know my reaction was always to go get another brick and make the jump just that much higher and look at my kid and go, you got this. Um, that little tiny difference, that little tiny bit of magic provides for the children those little experiences that tell them that magic in a, in a sense is real. And before people freak out that I'm doing like a Harry Potter thing, I'm not. What I'm saying is that we, again, we expect our children to believe that the absolutely miraculous actually happened. And I would say it's easier for them to believe that the miraculous happened in a particular point in time in history for their salvation if they've experienced little moments of magic in their everyday lives. This can be given by mom and dad. One of the things I point out in the book is that I, you know, I don't disparage what moms do. I was raised by my mother and she did a great job. She, she had to be both law and gospel in my life every day. And she more often than not inclined toward the gospel than the law. And I thank her for that. But I think in general, a mom's love is a little more providential. Um, it's a little more having to do with the care and sustenance of things. Um, and I think a dad's love is unique in that it's, uh, I don't know, it's a little more inclined towards the forgiveness, um, inclined towards the moments of grace, inclined towards the magical moments. And before people sort of get out of, nose has been out of shape about that i'd like to say hey i think god was pretty smart when he did this he created male and female he told them to be fruitful and multiply 
And when he gave them their characteristics of who they were as male and female, he made them so complimentary that if they work together towards the end of raising these people that he has put in their lives, these little people, in their vocation of mother and father, that it generally works out. It generally works out the way he planned because they're different, because the way they love is just that much slightly different, because it's important that one is a woman and because it's important that one is a man, one is feminine, one is masculine. And they bring to this sort of messed up world a picture that is a foggy picture um, of the kingdom. It's a, I say dads are foggy pictures of God's grace in the lives of their children. They don't exactly look like when, it, when a, um, a kid says, God is good like my dad is good. He's not saying that, of course, his dad is not as good as, as God. He's a sinner. And he's not, but he's also not saying that he's nothing like God, that the love the dad has is nothing like God's love. It's, it's meant to be an analogy. It's like that. Not a perfect match, but it's like that. It's a foggy picture. Uh, one thing Elise Fitzpatrick says is legalism will produce rebellion or self-righteousness. And I think we have probably a lot of people out there who are saying, you know, I think we've kind of screwed things up. We've been very legalistic in our home. We haven't been showing grace. Can you offer some encouragement to the person who's listening right now and thinking, I, I really need to learn how, you know, fathers who are listening maybe thinking, I need to learn to be that mouthpiece of God's grace. Yeah, well, I mean, my wife would punch me in the arm if I didn't say you could buy and read the book. Um, and it's, um, <laughs> Which I encourage doing, yes. Um, but I'd say generally, there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, I'll start it this way. I actually think men need to be around other men to get the sense of what this ethos feels like. Um, most men in our society, especially the younger they are, the worse it is, report that they don't have any good friends that are, that are men. And I think they need more of that because if you're going to see what this looks like, if you're going to know what this looks like, you got to see it, you got to feel it, you got to experience it. And I think if they've never experienced it, it's harder. But here's my word of encouragement. If they've never experienced it, it's not too late. Um, they can experience it by doing some of it. The biggest thing Again, I, I, I'm wary to get into the practical, but the biggest thing in my life that's been helpful, I tell you what, when you come home and the whole thing's a wreck, your inclination is just to start yelling because you, you just worked, whatever, you were in traffic, whatever, you're done too, and you just want to maybe vent a little bit too. My only piece of practical advice would be to take a breath, slow down, and uh, trust. And that's the hard part. It's just like in our salvation. It's really hard for us to trust that God has it all covered on account of Christ, right? We always want to do something. We're always trying to add to the salvation we have on, on account of Christ alone in some way, shape, or form. It's very difficult for us to trust. Um, I would say the same thing. It'll be difficult for you at first to trust that a gracious response, a forgiving response, a kind response, a compassionate response is the answer. It'll be difficult for men to trust that graciousness, kindness, compassion is masculine. Um, but it is. <laughs> it really is. It's the definition. One of the things I say in the book is that we find strength in our graciousness, right? We find, we find power in our ability to forgive. Um, so if you want those attributes as a man, you're probably looking in the wrong place if you go towards actually physical power or something like that. 
but trust, <clears throat> trust that graciousness and forgiveness on account of Christ will be enough. Trust enough to forgive your family. Trust enough for them to forgive you. And um, trust that Christ's forgiveness has spoken to you by those people that he has put in his life and has spoken by you to the people he's put in your life is enough. So um, since we're kind of starting to run out of time, I, I would really like maybe you just to tell a couple of the stories that you talk about that are in the book, just to kind of give um, our listeners an idea of what they're going to get when they read through your book. Sure. Um, a couple of years ago, I went to a conference, which I would recommend everybody checking out. It's called Mockingbird. It's put on by the Zoll family. It's in Mockingbird, NYC. So it's in New York City. I've gone three years in a row now. The first year I went, I'm a bad conference attendee. And um, in my everyday life, I'm kind of curmudgeonly too. So um, I go to conferences and I don't usually go to the morning devotions because I'm not as pious as I should be. Um, but I was with some people who were all about it, right? And they went to all the morning devotions and everything and they paid my way. So I managed to go to this morning devotion and I'm sure just knowing me that I was in the back corner somewhere with my computer open, not paying attention very well, probably writing being dad, um, not talking to anybody. And they had put in place a conference chaplain whose name was Jim Monroe, pastor Jim Monroe. He's an Anglican priest. Um, and I thought, well, this conference chaplain, by the way, is a pretty wonderful idea if you're going to have a heavy-duty gospel-oriented conference, because if you do do that, um, people are going to come to Christ <laughs> at that thing, and it's going to be pretty amazing, and they're going to need somebody to lean on when they're in a puddle of tears. They're going to need somebody to point them in the direction of a good church where they can hear the gospel every Sunday. So conference chaplain's a really good idea. His other job, other than you know picking people up out of their a puddle of tears was to give the morning devotions. And so again, I'm in the back, I'm not paying any attention. And he gets up and he says, I'm going to tell you a story about my dad. And automatically I perk up and I'm, he's got everything I've got. And he says, when I was 11 and my sister was seven, even though we're great friends now, um, when we were that age, we were not, um, you know, he, what did he say? He said, I would say that uh, self-giving forgiveness or something like that was not how our relationship was defined. He said, and I remember one day we were on the second floor landing of our house and we were in a horrendous argument. He said, at one point she was yelling at me and I got so tired of her yelling that I took my fist and I balled it up as hard as I could. And just as she started yelling, I cranked my arm back and as hard as I could, I punched her in the stomach and her mouth flew open to scream and to cry. He said, I looked over at the table next to me and I saw that there happened to be a bottle on that table. And then he goes on to explain, he says, for those of you in the audience who are older, you'll remember when DDT was legal to sell for use in home gardens. He says, for those of you that were younger, DDT is such a poisonous insecticide that it's now outlawed to use in the United States. And he says, and so I grabbed this can, which just so happened to be DDT, this very poisonous insecticide and chemical. And as she opened her mouth, I stuck it in her mouth and sprayed it in her mouth. He said, at that moment, my mother appeared out of nowhere. And I like to say that I think it's interesting how moms have this ability to somehow open a zipper in space time and step through that zipper from, they could be in the kitchen and just some sixth sense goes on. They know something's going on in the second floor landing, they open a zipper through space time and step through it and appear out of nowhere. 
And that's what his mom did. And he said, she said nothing. She scooped up my sister. She ran down the stairs, out the front door, into the street, flagged down the first car that came by, and went to the emergency room. Now, I like to encourage people to remember this is probably in the 50s in a you know, small town in Nebraska or something like that. And he says, and I waited. I went into my room. I sat on the edge of my bed, and I waited. I waited for my father to come home. It says, not long after I heard the door open and close, and I heard footsteps on the stairs, footsteps that he knew belonged to his father, and he knew one thing more. He knew that the apocalyptic second coming was about to occur, and it was going to occur right there in his bedroom. And then he says his father slowly opened his bedroom door. He looked in. He saw the tears. He saw the grief. He saw the despair. He saw the fear in Jim's eyes. And he knelt down and he opened his arms wide. And Jim says, I ran toward him like a shot. And his dad folded his arms around him and hugged him. And Jim closed his little devotion by saying, and I can still feel those arms to this day, and I know whose arms they really are. They are the arms with nail-scarred hands. It's that type of moment that not only can bring children to belief, but can sustain them in belief for the rest of their lives, as it has for somebody like Jim Monroe. And that, that's really very similar but different details to other stories in your book. Yeah, there's quite a few of those in there. And it, it's just really amazing because, of course, I've heard the ones that Rod has told that are very similar to where you're in that place where you know that you deserve your, your father's wrath, and yet, and, and yet he showers you with grace. Yeah, do you want one from Rod? I've got one from Rod, too. It's sure, I would, love, yeah. I would love that. Um, so uh, Rod Rosenblatt grew up in Tacoma, Washington. Um, his father was a heart surgeon, um, so successful, had a certain amount of wealth. So most, Rod even acknowledges when he tells his stories that um, they deal with a certain affluence on the part of his father to be able to provide him things that not every kid can be provided by their dads. But it doesn't matter because um, with or without those things, Rod's dad was this, this gracious figure. So Rod belonged to a high school fraternity, which I had never even heard of before. A high school fraternity. This must have been a thing in the 50s or something like that. Um, he belonged to a high school fraternity. And uh, part of the initiation ritual um, when a pledge would join the fraternity is that they would have to go on a scavenger hunt around Tacoma, Washington in their cars. Um, and I forgot what he had. I think Rod had a big Buick with a big Buick with a huge front A, uh, V8 on the end. And he said he was on one of these scavenger hunts going around Tacoma and they were all drunk as heck, um, you know, which he doesn't recommend, obviously. And he's coming out of, uh, of an alley and just nosing that huge front end out. But the front end gets very far out before he can see any cars coming down the alley and he gets T-boned by another car. He says the other guy's car basically stayed in place and his car fell to pieces. He had four guys in his car, all of whom were drunk. And he immediately called his dad and said, Dad, I've been in an accident. Dad's first question is the right one, by the way, if your kids ever call you and say that. Is everyone okay? He said, yeah, everyone is okay, but Dad, we're drunk. Um, his dad said, you stay right there. I'll be right there. 
So his dad comes, he gets the car towed, he picks up all the kids, he goes and delivers all the kids to our houses. He comes home and Rod is devastated and Rod is, you know, in shock and he's crying. Um, and he takes Rod into his study and he tells Rod's mom to go away. And I won't make any commentary on this, but what Rod says is that was the right move. And he sits down with him. And he says, Rod, how are you? And he said, well, dad, I, I'm shaking. His dad said, that's okay. You're probably in shock. You'll be okay. And his dad puts his arm around him and says, Rod, you know what I think you need? I think you need a new car. How about you get some ideas in your head about what you'd like, and I'll take some time off this week, and you and I will go look for to get you a new car. Now, that's astounding to us. That story is shocking to us. Most people would even say that was immoral on the part of his father to do that. But I love that story because if you compare it to the story of the prodigal son, the son comes home after destroying the family and destroying his father and his father's reputation. And before the son can even get out a word, he starts giving him gifts, shoes, cloaks, rings, a party. It's the same story. Rod would say that at that day, that day has what brought him back to the faith and what kept him a believer. Magic. Yeah. And I've heard him talk about that. And, that, and that's the amazing part of the story. You know what? I, I know that we will have listeners who will think this is shocking. This is, you know, can't, they can't believe this and stuff. But I, I'm going to just say from, from my perspective, I've got, I've got four sons right now. They range in age from 14 to almost 21. And I have loved the teenage years. And people used to say, just wait till they're teenagers. It's because my husband and I were influenced by Rod on his story and by Lisa's book, Give Them Grace, that we had a wonderful, we've enjoyed our, the teenage years. Instead of it being constant law in the home and anger and um, not even sure what, the opposite of peace, <laughs> trial, instead of that, we it changed. It changed our whole home to have a much a, a peaceful home. I just have to say that from my perspective because I know we're going to get yeah. People I could who... say I could say anecdotally the same thing. Um, I've raised three teenagers now too, and people have said the exact same thing to me. They've even said it. So I had two boys and then a girl, and they'd say, "How was it with the boys?" I say, oh, "I was fine with the boys." They're like, "Wait till your daughter." And I'm like, "Okay, now my daughter's 18, and it's been great, you know." And um, I've always wondered about that. But I, I would point people to two things who say that. And one, not to give the, a, sel a selfish plug, but give, give the entire argument in the book a chance before you make that conclusion. Because there's a construction process that happens before we get to that story of Rod's, right? A story of Rod's pretty much comes in at the end, as does the James Monroe story. It's sort of, it's sort of the icing on the cake. It's not the entire cake. Um, but two, maybe work on a mental correction or see if you can justify the fact that then you're you're explicitly saying that grace equals permissiveness because it doesn't um we were not permissive with our kids our kids knew the expectations um but they were free which in a lot of ways meant that the responsibility for their actions was handed over to them which is why i started this out by saying my book assumes that your kids have messed up and that there's been punishment that has been necessary and has either happened either by you 
and maybe not even punishment, consequences by you, by their teacher, by some other official, or by just the natural consequences of this world. The question is, now what? Now what? The prodigal son comes home broken. He comes home broken. Is it the father's job to double down on his brokenness or to make sure he knows he's still part of the family? That's the question. Um, and I, the last thing I'd add to that is if we expect to teach a message of radical grace, you know, that God on, on account of Christ saves us without our merit, without our good works, having anything to do with it, why is it so shocking that our homes might reflect that at least a little? Yes, absolutely. And if you want to hear more from Dr. Keith, I, I neglected to mention in the beginning, he has podcast with Rod Rosenblatt and Adam Francisco called The Thinking Fellows. Some of my listeners have already listened to your podcast because the eternal subordination of the sun was, of course, a very big debate on the reform side, and you guys did one of the best responses out there. So oh, good. Thank you. If you haven't listened to that one, I'm going to link that one specifically in the episode notes because it is so excellent. And then also you can read him at 1517 Legacy, which I will link, and The Jagged Word. And uh, we did an episode on fatherhood on Thinking Fellows, too. Yeah, my son, my oldest, see, this is going to, I'm going to be punished by my oldest son who produces the Thinking Fellows podcast because I'm supposed to start out every interview with <laughs> I'm the host of the Thinking Fellows, and I always fail to do it, so I'll be punished now. But we did an episode on fatherhood, too, where Rod tells his stories. So okay. Yeah, too. I was actually planning on linking that. And I do want to actually mention a couple other things from you that I think our listeners would be very interested in. You guys did a Thinking Fellows on Calvin, which was very good. I just listened to it um, last week. And then also you... And two other guys put together an outline of Calvin's Institutes, which I have, which is very helpful and excellent. Can you just kind of describe what that is real quick? Because I think a lot of our listeners are going to be interested in that. Yeah. Um, so we actually recorded two episodes on Calvin. The other, I don't know if the other one's dropped yet, but we've done. Okay. We recorded two on Calvin and one on Beza. Um, on all three of those episodes, Dr. Jeff Mallinson came on the show He's a Lutheran now, but the significance of that is, is that through his um, doctorate at Oxford, he was a Calvinist and studied not only the works of John Calvin, but of Theodore Beza. And I think is probably the, I'm going to go out on a limb here, say the world's foremost scholar on Theodore Beza. And if you're in the Calvinist tradition, that's a, that's a big deal. That's a big name. Um, sort of the codifier of Calvinism, if you will. Right. And so he, he does both of those shows. And when, um, he and I and one of our other friends were undergrads. We, for Rod Rosenblatt, and one of, well, it took uh, about a year and a half actually. We outlined both uh, volumes of Calvin's Institutes. It's the, the Ford Lewis Battles edition that's in the Library of Christian Classics. I think it's kind of the standard edition. And we did a comprehensive outline of that whole thing. And so if anybody just needs a resource to go along with the, the Institutes um, and or um, just can't get through the whole thing and wants to, maybe they read Christology and predestination or something like that. And they, they're not really into reading the rest of it, but they'd like to get a flavor of it. The outlines would do that too. We are actually linking that for free on the second Calvin episode on thinking fellows. So if, 
if oh, they, wow. If they tune into the second Thinking Fellows episode on Calvin and go to the website, um, the the outlines will be for free in the show notes. Okay, that that is that's huge. Um, so so my listeners, you need to go listen to those episodes. You need to get that. Um, Jeff is is wonderful on those topics. I've known Jeff for years. So that is that's really great. So I'm going to link all of that in our episode notes along with, I have to say one other thing. I have a copy of Being Dad to give away. So go to the Theology Gals page to this episode. There's going to be information there, how you can enter for the chance to get a free copy of Being Dad. And thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Keith, for coming on. And we'll be right back. Looking for that perfect track for your next evangelism outreach? Look no further. At TrackedPlanet.com, we have solid biblical tracks that are a breeze to hand out. They are beautifully designed and are the highest quality tracks available. With over 80 different designs in stock and literally hundreds more available by custom order, we're sure to have just the right one for you. You can get any of our items printed with your church or ministry information or have us design a brand new track just for you. We are committed to the solid biblical message of law to the proud and grace to the humble. Each tract is firm on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of repentance and faith in salvation. Come check us out at TrackedPlanet.com and make sure you use coupon code BTWN at checkout for 10% off your entire order. That's TRACTPlanet.com, coupon code BTWN. Okay, and now we're back from that from that interview with Scott. And I wanted to remind you guys, we have a free Being Dad, Father as a Picture of God's Grace book to give away. So if you go to our Facebook page and you find this episode, there's going to be information there on how you can be entered in uh, for a chance to get a copy of that book, which just in time for Father's Day. And mm-hmm. And for those, I mean, it, it really is. I actually just got, I had recommended that book to one of the girls in our group probably several months ago. And her husband just read it and she wrote to me and said, my husband loved it. Now he's telling his friends about it. So I think awesome. it's, it's a little bit different sort of parenting book. It's not a list of, you know, there's a lot of practical things. It's more an idea of what fatherhood should look like. And I, I enjoyed it even as a woman, so... Well, last week, our question of the week was your favorite amusement park, and I asked it in our group, so I thought I'd share some of the answers. Okay, so amusement park, some of the favorite ones from our group, Disneyland, got a couple of those. (laughs) Holiday World in Kings Island, I haven't even heard of those. Yeah, I don't know what that is, no. Okay, Walt Disney World, Okay. specifically the Magic Kingdom, and... So one person said, it used to be Six Flags until I got old and the rides hurt my neck and made me dizzy. <laughs> now I'd have to say Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. Somebody said the library. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. That's funny. Water parks, Six Flags over Texas, museums. Mm-hmm. Um, here you like this one. Wizarding World of Harry Potter, Universal oh, Studios. Oh, I'm jealous. Have you- I haven't have you been. been yet. Okay. No, I want to go so badly. Yeah, and we're gonna have to talk about Harry Potter sometime because now yeah. people, there's probably some people freaking out, going, "What?" 
Harry Potter. <laughs> but we have we have some well thought out things, and maybe we can Share talk them about sometime. them a little. On. What is your answer, Ashley? Because you and I really did kind of grow up in the amusement park mecca you know, area. Yeah, seriously. Um, right. So it's hard not to say Disneyland when I live 30 yeah. miles from Disneyland. Okay, here's here's my beef about Disneyland. There are way too many people. I was just gonna say way that. Way too many. It's not even fun when you're feel I know. like you're like you feel like you're like cattle being like right. pushed. It's just not fun. Way too many people and way too expensive. To yes. the point where I'm like, we had passes. My husband and I had passes when we were engaged, I think. And we it was fun to go like on a Tuesday night or yeah. something. But going on like a Saturday, that's not fun. Like right. it's it's not fun. So Okay, like I like Disneyland, but I don't love Disneyland. I think it's different. I'm sure someone listening who lives in like Kansas and has never even been to Disneyland is probably like, are you kidding me? You know, because it sounds so amazing. But since I've lived so close to it for so many years, I'm kind of like disillusioned. So I think I'd actually probably say Knott's Berry Farm, which I don't think a lot of -of out-of-state people would know what Knott's Berry Farm is. We talked about it last week, but it's kind of like if you could mix like Six Flags with like some fun like kitty rides because there are they have Camp Snoopy Snoopy for like kids, but they have like these huge rides that are really scary also. Mm -hmm. They have kind of like the whole gamut of rides. So I think I like Knott's because you can kind of choose, do I want to go on big rides? Do I want to go on small rides? And they have this like Western theme there. And you can right. buy like a turkey leg and stuff and eat that. And you know, there's a, there's a fried train. Chicken. Fried chicken. Fried chicken. There, there's a train ride that you can go on that goes around the park. And the first time mm-hmm. I went on, I didn't know this. So I hope I'm not spoiling it for anyone. But they'll do a fake, they do a fake like these like old, western robbers are like holding up the train mm-hmm. as you know it's just it's just kind of fun so yeah and i have, i can actually remember from when i was a kid too the first time that we went on that train and they they had the robbers so my mom had kind of prepared me uh-huh. but they have a ride that i really like called montezuma's revenge that just is mm-hmm. a really fast upside down kind of ride but in my old age <laughs> in my mid, <laughs> in my mid-20s I'm becoming kind of a wimp with uh, with big rides, so I don't know how much I'd like it now. Yeah, I haven't been there in years, but that's probably, it's so hard for me to answer because I like different things. There are things I I was thinking before we taped, you know, Disneyland, if, if it weren't for the people, Disneyland would be my favorite because yeah. I just have so many memories. Oh yeah, growing up. I mean, I remember back to buy little ticket books. You didn't have Mm -hmm. to pay to get in. You did tickets for each ride, so you could just go for an afternoon or an evening and go on a few rides, and it was just very different. So I have a lot of memories there, but I also have a lot of memories at Knott's Berry Farm and Magic Mountain. Although Magic Mountain, I think they have a little bit more roller coasters and stuff. And so as I'm getting older, I, I don't think that would be my favorite. You know, today I'm probably pretty similar to you. Yeah, I'm I'm really old now, so I can't, <laughs> I can't I can't hang. No, I have a friend who said when she growing up she would go on all these roller coasters, and she got to about 20 years old, and then got extremely motion sick. 
Like oh. she cannot go on a roller coaster without throwing up. Like, oh, that's so I don't I know. I don't know if it's like an inner ear thing that just like changed for her. But she said she would go on roller coasters when she was like six years old, and now, you know, she's like twenty five and can't go on anything. So, yeah, I was always afraid of them when I was little. I was like the one kid that had to stay off with my mom while <laughs> the other kids went. And then it was actually my friend Joy. We were at, I think, Knott's Berry Farm. And I think it's called the Corkscrew or something something like that. Okay. She talked me into going to it. It's like the first real, real, real big roller coaster I went to, went on. And I was like, oh my, that's so fun. And I wanted to go on a bunch of other ones. Yeah. Well, that's fun. So, Ashley, um, do you have a question for the week this week? Um, I, have, I have a couple, but I picked last week, so I thought... I'm going to let you pick again. Okay. I'm, lack, I'm lacking so, in creativity lately, so... Okay. So, I thought this would be fun, and I hopefully I can ask it right, but what when you were young, what is something that you looked forward to when you became an adult? Oh... That's fun. Like, I, I have a couple things that I was like, when I'm grown up, I'm going to do this, you know. Or I can't wait until I'm grown up and can do mm. this. I totally have some answers to that. Okay, I'll okay. look forward to that next week. Okay, and if you're in our group, we'll put a post in there where you guys can answer and we'll read some of your answers on next week's episode. So, I think other than that, you can find all the episode resources um, on the website, BibleThumpingWingNet.com and click on Theology Gals, and all of our information is there, right there. So you'll find anything you need there if you want to contact us. So we will see you next week.